Welcome to another episode of Inking of Immunity, the podcast. Thanks for joining us, where my co-host and I, I'm Chris Lynn from the University of Alabama, a biocultural anthropologist. My co-host, Dr. Becky Owens from the University of Sunderland in the UK, and Mike Smetana, who is also here at Alabama. We talk to some of the coolest tattoo researchers about the cool shit that they research. Today, our guest is Dr. Matt Lauder a tattoo historian and senior lecturer in art history at the University of Essex in the UK. We really appreciate Matt taking the time out of his schedule to chat with us about the modern history of tattoos from an art historian's perspective. So with that, let's get to it. Hello. 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 How the devil are you? We are awesome. Pretty good. How are you? How are you? Getting there, mate. Oh. <laughs> Overworked, underpaid, as this, as we all are. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can, I can you, relate to what are you that. talking about? We got, we're showered with riches here in, in Alabama. <laughs> oh. if, if we happen to be football players, or coaches, that is, which I'm not. I guess now Turbeville's in, in the Senate, there's a vacancy, right? So I can... <laughs> oh. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> Roll tight. Oh. Well, thanks for that, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so we have with us Matt Lauder, who is way too on top of American football politics. <laughs> we already did a little bit of an introduction. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Sorry, it's been a a, a bit of a nightmare to nail me down. Um, <laughs> a combination of crazy workload and ADHD. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I noted that on your Twitter profile, so I actually said to Becky, I'm like, hey, he's already pre-excused himself from um, getting back to folks in emails or whatever right away. So yeah, that's a good tactic. Yeah. If it's uh, yeah. if it's real, hey, like let's be super honest about ourselves, right? I think it's important. We all we all have these uh, interesting personalities, but but less about me. There's a podcast <laughs> for tattoo researchers to talk to other tattoo researchers, pick their brains, and write books. So tell us about yourself. We know you've been working on a book for a while. You you submitted your PhD research on the topic of art history and tattooing ten years ago, and you've been putting out all sorts of interesting articles on tattooing and other things for a while, a few of which I'm going to pick your brain about today. Um, I right. found your article on modern primitives absolutely hilarious as someone who grew up uh, to some <laughs> extent on that book. But if you could just broadly tell us your background and what got you into all this, we'd be grateful. Yeah, sure. So when I was a kid, uh, my dad told me that uh, no one would pay me to read books for a living. <clears throat> so I had to, go and get, had to go and do something other than uh, the things I wanted to do. So I went and did a languages degree initially. And then it being the late 90s, I then moved on to a um, master's degree in the body. So I did, a, I did an interdisciplinary master's degree on the body and representation, and then moved from there into art history. So I, don't, I didn't have any kind of training in art history, but I really realized that art history was a way of, as a method set, I suppose, was a way of making sense of the of tattoo history because i'd been into tattooing since i was very young 
Um, I was starting to get tattooed and, and body modified. And I was, you know, I guess like you as well, growing up in that scene of mid to late 90s, uh, emergence of piercing and body mod and all that stuff. And it was really kind of intriguing me. But the more I looked in the kind of academic stuff that was published, the less, it, less that stuff made any sense to me as someone who was quite proximate to, to the scenes. So art history sort of offered a way, I think, for, for me at least, to try and solve some of the discrepancies, I guess, in certainly in his, the history of tattooing um, scholarship. And I think probably a bit more broadly than that as well. So my PhD was really a a methodological statement really about like how to make tattooing make sense as an art form. Um, I initially sort of was going to do something a lot more, uh, again, late 90s. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to do something that was a lot more wankily theoretical in that kind of uh, late 90s, early 2000s mode, right? I, Wait, I was, is I, that I was sort swearing of... in the UK, wanker? Well, it's, it's not, I, I wouldn't say on the BBC. Okay. Just checking. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when I started the PhD, I was going to do something about, you know, the ontological status of the modified body in the world, like what it meant, what, would, what it would mean to be an artwork, right? And it turns out that actually the question of whether tattoo art is art at all was a much more complicated, much, much less research topic than I'd imagined. And so that first chapter of the initial proposal has now become <laughs> 15 years of my life. So, yeah, and so since, basically, since the PhD, um, I've been really working on more straightforward history stuff. And the book uh, is long overdue because I've been doing other things, largely in the last five or six years, exhibition making. So I've been curating exhibitions on the history of British tattooing, working with collectors, um, and all of that also within a kind of methodologically self-critical lens, like thinking about why... Why the why tattoo scholarship in general is so terrible, basically. <laughs> not universally, not universally, but broadly, broadly garbage. Can I just follow up and ask you what you mean by that and why? Because I mean, we're we're of the same opinion, and I'm just curious if we have the same attitudes about it. Yeah. So, well, I'm actually, funnily enough, one of the things I'm ADHDing at the moment, uh, very late, that was due about two months ago and is now definitely due tomorrow. So I'm going to go and finish this after we've talked. It's an article about this exact thing, right? So I think basically that the methodologies of tattoo scholarship have not been sufficiently interested in the kind of materiality of tattooing. So there's lots of books about tattoos by sociologists, by psychologists, by anthropologists, which don't really mention tattoo artists at all. So there's a kind of flattening of analogy. The other thing I, I think that people get wrong is that as an art historian, it's quite an easy analogy to make, right? But when I'm giving talks about the tattoo history that I'm an expert in, which is particularly kind of contemporary Western tattooing. People are like, oh, what about the Maori? What about Samoa? What about the Arctic? And I'm like, well, if I was an expert in Renaissance frescoes, you wouldn't be asking me about cave painting and, you know, Aztec wall painting or graffiti. So I, you know, I sort of say tattooing is a medium, not a phenomenon. And I think that's at the root of everything, right? Tattooing is treated often by scholars as a phenomenon loads of focus on pain and loads of focus on you know transgression and all this stuff when actually there's something more interesting going on in specific contexts right so that's the first thing and then the other thing i think is that there's this sort of archival lens problem certainly for history this is less true for psychology but for history 
the place that most academics have gone to look for evidence of tattoo history has been those places they go to look for other kinds of history, right? And of course, it's not there. So there's a conclusion that it, there's an absence. And actually, if you look beyond the museum and you look beyond the kind of library and you, you look in private collections, you find a lot more stuff uh, that tells a much richer and much more complicated story than is, is usually accounted for. You know, one of the reasons largely that tattooing has been written about persistently as like for criminals and sailors is because they're the people whose, whose tattoos you find in archives. <laughs> Well, I could rant about this. I've got several hours of talks on these on each one of these topics, but I'll, that'll do as a summary. Yeah, no, I, uh, we appreciate that. And, and this is the essence of our problem, too, is that we could go on and on. There are so many things. So, you know, I just want to say at the outset that we're super grateful to have you on. This is one of a thousand topics that are of interest to us. And the goal here is to sort of pull them together under one umbrella and help us as we do our own tattoo research and yeah. tease apart so many different threads that are underexplored. So you're spot on in that respect. But I don't want to dominate our side of the conversation. I think Becky has a question. You just mentioned there a bit about, you know, you were interested in tattooing when you were younger anyway. And I guess I kind of just wondered what what came first. Was it the research interest that came first or was it the tattooing that came first? No, it's absolutely the tattooing that came first and, and, and trying to make sense of it led me to become an art historian. You know, I've always been bookish and nerdy obviously um as i said you know it turns out people do get paid to read books for a living as long as we tell people about them so you know <laughs> yeah it was it was really a kind of sense of inquiry into things i wanted to know more about and my sort of secret superhero origin story comes really from two stories that i was told as a kid by my grandparents my granddad was a dutch naval submariner in world war ii and he told me that he was drunk on his rum ration and he woke up in a tattooist's chair in Jakarta in the Dutch East Indies, just as they were about to tattoo a fly on the end of his nose. And he woke up just in time. <laughs> so that was cautionary tale number one, never get tattooed. So he was resolutely and proudly untattooed because he'd escaped from having his nose tattooed. And then my grandma told me, and my grandma's English and she was her mother, so my great grandma, who was sort of a labourer's daughter in the late 19th century. Her brother came home one day with a tattoo machine and said to his sister, my great-grandma, can I tattoo you? And she said, yes, as long as it comes off. And he said, of course it will come off. <laughs> so, so, he, so he tattooed her wrist uh, with her initials and of course it didn't come off. So both of those stories, I guess, as a kid were meant to dissuade me from getting tattooed. <laughs> But of course, you know, don't jump in puzzles and we all know what happens. So that's where it comes from. And then I guess like, as I've gone on, my research has sort of ended up being trying to reconcile those two stories with the standard histories of tattooing. You know, the sort of drunken sailor one uh, is quite comprehensible, but like young working class woman in England in the early 20th century, like what's going on there? What's that story about? I've since found out, actually, this is one of the things that you only find if you look in tattoo collections, because um, they're not to be found in any libraries anywhere. But for a very brief while at the beginning of the 20th century, tattoo machines were sold as toys um, in a department store in London. We've got a, a couple of catalogue pages have shown up in private collections. <laughs> Firstly, as electrical novelties and then uh, alongside uh, telephones and doorbells. And like that kind of commercial story, that kind of quite material history of tattooing 
which embeds it in bigger stories um, about technological change in that case, for example, like make much more sense to me uh, of the tattoo history that I uh, see than these stories of like, you know, that you read in, in the newspapers or in, or in some scholarship, you know, tattooing is not just for sailors anymore. You know, I, I, collect, I collect this cliche. So I've got examples of that cliche that, that there's a sort of tattooed present and there's a tattooed past some kind of then when tattooing was just for sailors and criminals and I found examples of that exact cliche back to 1880 and there's a couple of even earlier versions than that really and then the question is like why does that cliche persist so why does it persist well that that I have to say I'm still working on I mean I don't have a really definitive answer but I think part of it is well most tattooing is invisible so tattooing is under clothing and the tattoos that are visible certainly in, up until very very recently have been you know on people whose bodies were surveilled or on display so whilst there was lots of tattooed bank managers in the 1920s i mean i mean lots but there were definitely enough to sustain a good tattooing industry in new york for example in the 1920s you weren't seeing your bank managers back right but if a guy's digging the road you're gonna, he's got his sleeves rolled up. You're going to um, see only a certain subset of, of tattooing. And that's, again, true for, for academic research as well. Only a sort of subset of tattooing is preserved in museums and archives. And then I think the people that write about tattoos, and this sort of comes back to this methodological flattening thing, the question is always, like, why do people get tattooed? What would, why would you do that to yourself, basically? And that is not a question that tattoo people often ask or are interested in it's something that non-tattooed people ask and i think the people that have been writing these articles for 150 years or so are people who are like oh my god why is everyone getting tattooed i wouldn't do that to myself so i mean that's not universal but i think that's part of it so and the, the other reason of course slightly tongue-in-cheek is that tattooists quite like this story i had a tattooist years ago tell me like stop going around telling people that tattooing isn't subversive because I make my money from 18 year olds believing that it is. My response to that is also to say, and I think this is probably the actual answer to your question, is that tattooing is not quote unquote popular. It's not quote unquote trendy. It's not quote unquote acceptable um, and never will be in a, in a Western context because it, there's something fundamental about, no matter how many people get tattooed and how easy it is for tattooed people to get jobs and stuff, whatever, something fundamental about being tattooed is counter to the way that normative Western culture thinks about embodiment. And so even if uh, tattooing is more popular now than ever, which is certainly true, it ain't quote unquote acceptable and sort of never will be. So it's got sort of um, a boundary breaking chic or, or some something like that. I, it just makes me think of way back when I was younger and in a band and we did our first interview and uh, the journalist asked me about us and I said something to the effect of, yeah, we're basically nice guys. Everybody in my band was so pissed off that I'd said that. <laughs> they were like, never say that to the press again. You're a badass rock person. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I, the thing is as well, I, you know, I never want to sort of say that tattooing, um, isn't a, a, a history that's suffused with seafaring and criminality and roguishness, because of course it is, right? And that's one of the things that has long 
gotten many of us in, into it in the first place the romance and the kind of mythology is part of what's so interesting about tattooing it's just it's just not the whole story you know i find that the way you present the history so interesting particularly around the whole journalistic aspect of it and how this this narrative is kind of cyclically re-perpetuated by people who may or may, or may not have tattoos themselves but view it in a certain way so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, so my, my favorite, as I collect these cliches, my favorite example of, of them, the one that most frequently comes to mind, is from 1926, Vanity Fair. And it says, tattooing has passed from the savage to the sailor and from the sailor to the landsman and is now to be found beneath many a tailored shirt, right? That's a hundred years ago. And yet you can pick up a newspaper today and it will say the frickin' same thing. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, it, it's certainly true that tattooing is more popular now than ever. That is undeniable. But there's no break point. There's no kind of before and after. You know, that, that is the thing that I think is really at the heart of it. Everyone wants to kind of divide to history right into kind of present and past. And I think actually what's more interesting about tattooing to me is its ever presence, right? Like in all human societies, there's this desire to mark your body. And it would be a mistake to assume that, that tattooing is absent as a technology, right? And so what becomes more interesting is not like, not the technological aspect, it's the particular relationships or moments that tattooing has with its immediate surroundings. I mean, there's a, another great example, like from the year after I was born, from 1981, which is from a magazine from, in London, uh, called City Life, I think it's called. And it, it says loads of people are doing it now, you know, uh, including like university lecturers, right? And that's 40 years ago. And it says, if you think I mean, it's, that it's for sex workers and, and syphilitics or something, you're, <laughs> you're out of date. And yeah, it's just really exhausting to keep having to have these conversations. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask about the work of Samuel Stewart, Phil Sparrow. Uh, it, it, it reminds me of, of this motif, right? So I was just texting back and forth with Mike and Becky about this yesterday, that in some ways you remind me of him, right? We're, we're talking about someone who is a, a university lecturer in the humanities who's heavily tattooed and really looking at these intersections but more known as a tattooed person. Yeah. Right? Because for those of you who haven't seen Matt yet, go look at his Twitter profile. He's, <laughs> he's got visible facial tattoos. But, I mean, this is a guy who, behind the scenes, was buddies with Gertrude Stein and Alfred Kinsey. And, yes, is that the uh, biography of him? That's his autobiography notes that didn't, wasn't published. Oh, wow. This is his letters to, to Gertrude there's another great book that's a collection of the columns he wrote for a dental magazine. He's, a, he's an amazing guy. He's fascinating. Yeah. And so he wrote this book, Bad Boys and... Oh, Bad Boys. Yeah, Bad Boys and Tough Tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a few signposts well along the way of authoritative tattoo books, but it's almost like um, an afterthought of his that seems to have risen, like yeah. epitomized his career, and yet it, it barely reflects it at all. It's so fascinating. Yeah, and he's a, he's a guy, you know, and his, his thesis of tattooing is also actually a bit flawed, I think, because it comes, he, he has a very psychosexual account of tattooing, because that's what it was for him. I mean, he had a psychosexual account of everything. Yes, <laughs> everything. he did. 
Yeah, he's he's an incredible guy. The other amazing thing about him is he apprenticed briefly Ed Hardy. He introduced Ed Hardy to Japanese tattooing. A gay man who was a professor of literature, who was working as a tattoo artist in the summer vacations, largely so he could pick up hot sailor boys that he was too old to pick up in bars, right? Erudite, weird in all the best ways, who like kept this thing called the stud file, where he like recorded every single sexual encounter he ever had, including the lengths of the dicks of the guys that he slept with and all of these stuff. Amazing guy. He was, he was one of the prototypes for Kinsey's sex life of the human male. Yeah. He recorded orgies for Kinsey, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, but he taught, briefly taught at least, Ed Hardy to tattoo. And he certainly introduced Ed Hardy to the stuff that wasn't Burt Grimm. You know, it wasn't the Pike stuff. So Sammy has this really, really like powerful role at at the heart of of tattoo history. And it's this intellectual queer guy. He sort of sits almost as this kind of, you know, seminal pardon the pun, um, person at the beginning of modern Western tattooing. And, and he's that just, as you said, his kind of contribution is really complex if you just believe that tattooing is just for sailors, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why I ask you. I'm, I'm, I had no idea about the Ed Hardy connection. That blows my mind. Yeah. So when I started looking at Americana tattooing and the history here, right, it starts with Samuel O'Reilly uh, inventing the tattoo machine and the folks doing Chatham Square work here in New York City, but you have documented a similar history in Britain, and I wonder if you could tell us about that. Yeah, so as I said, I'm interested in this art history of tattooing. Um, The analogy there becomes clearer in the professional era, right, which is this moment in time when you can, as a member of the regular public, walk into a shop and pay money to someone you don't know to tattoo you. And that begins basically in Britain in the like early 1880s, let's say, like about 1880, 1881. Um, There's a slightly earlier history in the US. So Martin Hildebrand is really listed as the kind of pioneer in in America in who's visible from the like, as he's tattooing in the Civil War, but he, you know, is visible as a professional tattooist who you can pay money to in the 1870s. He gives an interview to the New York Times. But so in the UK, um, the real kind of first pioneer is a guy called Sutherland MacDonald. And look, he's not the first tattooer. He's not the first, you know, there's plenty of other people around at the time, but he's the kind of first person that really emerges into the public consciousness in Britain as a professional tattoo artist. In fact, he claims to have coined the word tattooist as a contraction of tattoo artist because he didn't want to be a tattooer because that made him sound too much like a plumber <laughs> or a bricklayer. There are a couple of earlier uses of, of the word tattooist, actually. He's, he, he's sort of blowing his own horn a bit much there. But anyway, he, he begins tattooing in, in the Hammam Turkish bath. He'd grown up in a Turkish bath in Aldershot, and he served in the army, he obviously learned to tattoo in the army. He was a telegraph operator. So you want machines that have electromagnets. So he was sort of in the right place at the right time. He was interested in tattooing. He had a, was obviously a pretty good artist. He could draw, basically. And um, he had, managing the Turkish baths in German Street, a clientele of wealthy, half-naked, rich men, largely, as clients. So he was in the right place at the right time. And also the right time coincides with basically Japanism. So this is the other thing that I think uh, I'm actually going to write a proper paper on because it needs to be spelled out a bit more clearly. But basically, the reason we have professional tattooing in the UK, and it's also true 
to, to America to a slightly lesser degree is that people, after Japan opens up to the West in the 1860s, people start getting tattooed quite quickly. Um, in fact, there's English language guidebooks in Japan, which basically say, if you want to get some real Japanese art, get it tattooed because all the shit in the shops is all fake tourist nonsense. And obviously not everyone is able to travel to Japan and the people who got, got tattooed in Japan wanted to get tattooed again when they got home. And again, the link there is really straightforwardly art historical. The images people are tattooing on themselves are literally the same images taken from Hokusai and other Japanese print sources that we find on silverware, ceramics, cartouche boxes, cloisonné, textiles. The paper that I'm writing is about a little frog, Hokusai frog. And people are tattooing them on their bodies because it's fashionable, because it's trendy, because it's hip, basically. And that really is what drives a market for professional tattooing. It makes it possible to earn a living as a tattoo artist. And so, yeah, when that happens, we're off to the races. But weirdly, you know, that story of the professionalization is, is a story in Britain a bit more than in the US, but certainly in Britain, that's a story of taste. It's a story of consumption. And it's not really a story of kind of criminals and dockers, you know. From the historical point of view, it's also weirdly not ever talked about by historians of Japanese art. Uh, I've actually sat down with the curator of Japanese art at the, at the British Museum and sort of showed him this stuff. And he was like, oh, I had no idea. But it's exactly parallel. So the images people are hanging on their walls are the same images they're having tattooed on their bodies. And like that seems, seems to me a really straightforward and obvious thing to say. But you will look for it in vain in the history of tattooing scholarship. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this distinction between tattooer, like you implied was considered somewhat of a tradesman, like a plumber or something. And yeah. then this, this transition to tattooist as a legitimate profession. Yeah. And this was something we, when we spoke to Dr. Gemma Angel, she was like, ask Matt about this. He, he will have, <laughs> he will have the answers you're looking for. Um, but yeah, I was just, just wondering about this, this transition in terminology and, and was it just this, this trend and this fashion that drove it or was was there something else in conjunction with that well so so i'm I, I also am really clear now to sort of say that i don't want to give tattooing a kind of honorific title of art right either a general or some parts of it but that's also something that art history is quite good at you know we art historians are able to distinguish between good art and bad art and in fact the tools of art history are quite good for doing that <laughs> What I think the general public mean by artist, and certainly what tattooers and to tattoo artists have meant when, they make, when they've made those claims, is that, hey, I'm, take me seriously, I'm good at what I do, right? It is a kind of defensive use of the, of the term. Um, and you still see it today, you know, t there's a kind of sense that sometimes like some kinds of tattooing are art and some kinds of tattooing are not art. Um, and I really resist that as well. You know, as I, as I always want to say, I think tattooing is able to be thought about using the tools of art historical scholarship, but I don't ever want to kind of claim that tattooing is an art to give it some kind of honorific. But for like MacDonald and those that followed him, like being taken seriously, I think was quite important for them. And in fact, being taken seriously in a kind of aesthetic sense, certainly in the, that first generation, people like Tom Riley and Alfred South in London. And this is actually, this is true for Samuel O'Reilly in the US as well, I think. Being taken seriously as, as 
artistic professionals just help them get a better class of client you know like there's a quote uh, i don't know if i've got it here exactly but there's a there's a quote from mcdonald's really early on in the 1880s when essentially the the, the interviewer says to him like aren't you worried that tattooing is becoming a bit too trendy <laughs> right isn't it a bit too popular now everyone's doing it and he says like oh no because uh, I'm an artist and, and, and most of my competitors aren't. So I'm not really worried about all these sort of Johnny-come-latelys. Um, let me find the exact quote because I think it is worth... Oh, I don't know where it is. Um, and I, so I think, I think this kind of move to being taken seriously or to being to asked to be thought of as an artist is... It's good business, you know? Like, so McDonald's studio was on German Street, which is still a fashionable part of the West End of London same kind of street as tailors and as i said art galleries um many of the other guys who were attract, trying to attract a high-end client base were working on the strand uh you know there was there was a sort of parallel market for sort of cheap the cheaper stuff it has to be said but it was really important for these guys at a time of like real technological and social change in the 19th century to be taken seriously you know, one of the other, other things that they often, many of them often advertise, and this is sort of, you see that there's a sort of medicalization that comes in as well around the turn of the century, sort of calling themselves professor. And that comes with like white coats. It comes with um, injectable cocaine to numb the, numb the sight of tattooing. One journalist actually who went to McDonald was like, he told me I didn't need the cocaine, but I got it anyway. And it was, it was real good. <laughs> it comes with like advertising that says bad tattoos fixed. You know, it comes with all, all the kind of language of a kind of medicalized art form that I think is super interesting. Surprise! My name is Carrie Yancey. I'm the production manager here at Inking of Immunity. And this episode ended up being just a little too juicy to cut down to 30 minutes. So we've got our first two-parter on the podcast. We're going to have that second part out to you just as soon as we can get it finished. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Dr. Matt Lauder. We really appreciate him coming on and we will see you guys next time. Bye.